Welcome to the Time for More podcast. We want to inspire you to love Jesus and the Bible that Jesus loved. My name is Steve, and every week I preach a sermon in my church, and there isn't always time for some of the more complicated stuff. I'm glad that you've joined me today for this episode as we make time for more, more about who Jesus is, and more about the Bible that Jesus loved. Well, hello everybody. Thanks for joining me today for the podcast here. We're going to be talking today about how Matthew sees Jesus. Matthew sees Jesus through an Old Testament lens. Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Matthew sees Jesus as a new Moses. And Matthew sees Jesus as a rejection of the Judaism of his day. We're going to dig into that a little bit here. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving last weekend. I took Thanksgiving weekend off. I normally record the podcast on Mondays. Took some time just to spend time with my family. We played some games, watched some TV, had a good time together as a family. I hope you were able to do the same. And in spite of the restrictions that we have here around gatherings and things like that. I hope that you were able to still get together with some of your family and had a great time. We're going to dig in here to Matthew. We have moved in our sermon series from the book of Mark to the book of Matthew, and we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount right now. But I want to take a look at the bigger picture of how Matthew sees Jesus. We saw in Mark that Mark had a unique perspective on Jesus and that Mark was trying to do things and communicate things by the way that he formed his material, by the way that he organized his material, by the words that he put in different people's mouths and so on. Matthew does different things, but Matthew, again, has his own unique perspective. Matthew sees Jesus through an Old Testament lens. If you start off in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew starts off saying, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham, and If you take a look at that closely, you will find that Matthew is using the Greek words from the Septuagint in the book of Genesis. Biblos Genesios, the book of the genealogy, or here in the New Living Translation, a record of the ancestors of Jesus. This is actually something that appears in the book of Genesis quite a number of times, actually. And the first appearance of it is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is an account of the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 5, 1, this is an account of Adam. And later on in Genesis 6, this is an account of Noah. This is an account of Terah. This is an account of Esau, of Jacob. And all throughout Genesis, we see this particularly in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of Genesis, this Biblos Genesios. So Matthew actually is drawing our attention to Genesis, to the Torah, and he is wanting us to see Jesus through that Old Testament lens. And of course, the genealogy itself, Matthew goes on to talk about, you know, the whole list of names 
And he presents his genealogy very similarly to the genealogies that we see in the book of Genesis. Again, he is formulating a pattern here. He's wanting us to see that he is looking at Jesus through the lens of Torah and prophets and Psalms. And then he closes off his list saying, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So Mary makes it into Matthew's list, but he is clear to point out that Joseph is a descendant of, ultimately, of David. So that makes Jesus a son of David, which makes Jesus the Messiah. He's careful to point that out, and he is again drawing our attention to Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophets. And even the birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1 here, where the angel comes to Joseph in verse 20, the angel appears to Joseph, says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Now, if you go back and look at Genesis 17, verse 19, and if you remember that uh, Abraham is met by a group of angels, one of them being an angel of the Lord, who we later kind of find out is God himself. It's a theophany of God appearing to Abraham. And these angels tell Abraham that he is going to have a son, that Sarah is going to have a son. And Sarah laughs out loud when she hears that. But uh, that's Genesis 17, verse 19. You can go and read it. And the account here, even though this is, of course, what happened, and Matthew believes this happened to Jesus, he believed this is, is really what happened, but it draws our attention back to Genesis, back to Torah, the way that Matthew starts his story and the way that he describes his story. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than any other gospel, and Matthew actually quotes from the Torah quite a bit. I don't think any of the other Gospels quote from the Torah, but Matthew quotes from the Torah in his Gospel. One account or one example of that is in the temptation of Jesus. Jesus' responses to Satan all come from the Torah. So Jesus is quoting the Torah in his response to Satan. So Matthew wants us to see Jesus through the Old Testament lens. He also wants to, us to see Jesus as a Jew who uh, respects Torah and, is, is, and loves Torah and is familiar with Torah. Now this makes sense because Matthew's background is Matthew is actually Levi in the book of Mark. And we've come across Levi in the book of Mark already. Levi is known as a tax collector. He was seen by the Pharisees as scum, as a, as a, a really bad sinner. And he and his friends, when, when Levi invites Jesus over to his house, the Pharisees come by and say, why is Jesus eating with such scum? And uh, that is Matthew, that is Levi. He has felt the sting of those who claim to believe Torah, but actually didn't really fulfill Torah. And then he's met Jesus, who not only claims to believe Torah, but actually fulfilled the heart of Torah. So 
uh, Matthew is is showing us that Jesus is a Jew that loves Torah. Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. From Matthew chapter 1 through to Matthew 4 verse 16, which is when uh, Jesus calls his apostles, Matthew quotes lots of times from the Old Testament. His quotations do things like tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 22, right here, Matthew says, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he quotes Isaiah, and he says, all of this occurred to fulfill what Isaiah was saying to us. Then he goes on in Matthew chapter 2. The Herod meets the Magi, the wise men from the east. They ask him, well, where is this Messiah going to be born? We've seen his star in the east. And Herod consults his wise men, and they tell him that the prophets say that this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they quote the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So again, Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfilled what the prophets had said. Matthew 2 verse 15, we see that Jesus and his family take off. They, they are warned that Herod is going to try to kill Jesus, and so they leave for Egypt. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, we see here they stayed in Egypt until Herod's death. And then Matthew is again clear to use these same words. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod finds out about this, this new king that's born, and he has all of the children under the age of two murdered. And then Matthew says, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. This is just the first two chapters, even just portions of the first two chapters. And we've already seen Matthew say multiple times, this was done to fulfill what this prophet said. So Matthew is clear to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. And then uh, if we want to take a look here at Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount. He starts to teach about the law, and as he starts to teach about the law, here is what Jesus says. He says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Now, Jesus said this, but Matthew is the only gospel writer to record this. And why is Matthew the only gospel writer to record this? Well, Levi 
He is a Jewish person. He's interested in how Jesus is keeping Torah. He's, he's one who actually fully respects Torah. And this sticks out in Matthew's mind, and Matthew remembers this. And, and he's the only one to quote this idea that Jesus has come as a fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to disrespect the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. He says, I came to fulfill their purpose. So Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophets, as the fulfillment of the law. Matthew also sees Jesus as the new Moses. If you continue on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see here that we have the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and look at how Matthew sets up the Sermon on the Mount. Look at how Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount. It says here, One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. It's interesting because we talked about this a few weeks ago. The, the Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for the prophet that was going to be like Moses. And we see in the book of John, uh, John describes a group of, of people, different groups of people actually coming up to Jesus or coming up to his disciples and saying, are, are you the prophet that we are expecting? Because there was a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses said that a prophet greater than him would come and do all of the same kinds of miracles and things that he did. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we see that the, the prophetic writer is saying that no other prophet has come who was like Moses, which leaves that Deuteronomy 18 prophecy open and people in Jesus' day were still waiting for this prophet who was like Moses. Now, Matthew doesn't come out directly and say that Jesus is that prophet. In John, we see Jesus ask that question, and it's implied that he is that prophet. But what Matthew does is he places Jesus in a position where he looks like a new Moses, where we see Jesus on a mountain just like we saw Moses on a mountain in Exodus 20. And the idea is that Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is on a mountain and he's giving a new covenant. He's giving a new law. He's giving a new calling for his people. And Jesus is set up, in a sense, looking like this new Moses. And yet what's interesting about Matthew 5 verse 1, is that Jesus is actually in God's position here. The people, Jesus' disciples, are in Moses' position here. So if you take a look at it, Jesus goes up to the mountainside, he sits down, the disciples gather around, and he starts to teach them. What happened when Moses went up to the mountain in Exodus chapter 20? Well, God gave him the Ten Commandments. God spoke out the law to Moses. Now, remember, God wanted all of the people to go up the, to the mountain, but they didn't want to go up, and they sent Moses up in their place. And here we see Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus in the God position. He's the one who's giving out the law. 
He is sharing, he is describing the law, and the disciples are in the Moses position, and they are sitting and hearing the law. So that's interesting. But in Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, if you look through his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a new identity for his people. Just like the, the Jewish people, they had an identity, and their, the first covenant gave them an identity as God's people, as the ones who were saved and called by God. They, there was a, a sense where they, the circumc- circumcision was the entrance into the old covenant or the first covenant. And in the New Covenant, there's the sense where baptism is in the entrance into the New Covenant. But God gives his people an identity in the Old Covenant, and Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives his people an identity as well. He says, he says your identity is, is you are those that are poor. Recognize that you are poor and that you need God, and the kingdom of heaven is yours, and, and you are those who recognize uh, and mourn, and you will be comforted. You are those who choose the humble position, and you will inherit the earth. You are those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness, and you will be satisfied. And, and you are those who are merciful, and you will be shown mercy. You are those whose hearts are pure, and you will see God. Uh, you are those who work for peace, and you will be called the children of God. Uh, You are those who are persecuted for doing what is right, and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. So so he's describing the new identity of his people. And then he gives a new calling for his people. He tells his people that they are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And that's a new calling that that Jesus' followers have in this new covenant. They're going to be salt of the earth. They're going to be the ones who are preserving the world, the ones who are creating thirst in in the world for God. Um, And they're going to be the light of the world. They're going to be just like light exposes darkness and light shines the way or guides the way towards God or towards, uh, you know, the pathway out of darkness. In the same way, Jesus' new covenant people are going to be people who uh, are the salt of the earth. They cause people to thirst and hunger for God. They help preserve the world while God is waiting for people to choose him and turn to him. And they are the light. They are the ones who expose darkness. They are the ones who shine uh, their way to God. So there's a new identity for Jesus' people. There's a new calling for Jesus' people. There's also a new law. Jesus gives the new law, and we're going to get into this in future podcasts and future sermons, but Jesus sets up this contrast where he says, you have heard, and then he quotes from the Torah, and then he says, but I say, and then he takes that law in a different direction. The Old Testament law, the Jews of Jesus' day had externalized the law, so they had taking commandments like do not murder, do not commit adultery, and they they had externalized them to the point where they justified things like anger and lust and impure motivations and things like that. 
because they weren't actually committing murder. They weren't actually committing adultery on the outside. So Jesus said to them, you know, you're, you're just like a cup that is clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. And so they had externalized the law and made it all about how you look. And Jesus internalizes the law in Jesus' new covenant, his new law, is, is he wants to actually change us from the inside out. He wants to take and, and change our hearts and deal with the anger that's in our hearts and deal with the lust that's in our heart and deal with the impure motivations that are in our heart because he knows that when our heart is right, then what comes out of us is actually going to be good and pure. Now, in the Old Testament, in, in Exodus, and particularly in Deuteronomy, we see this theme as well, that God is, is saying in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, if you read in there, you'll see that God alludes to this idea that he, he really does want the covenant to be a covenant of the heart. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel later on, as prophets will, also make reference to this. They'll say that God is going to, to, to make a new covenant with his people. He's going to write his law on their hearts, and he's going to write his law and put his spirit into them. And so Jesus is really taking kind of the original intent of the Torah, and he's saying that, that this is going to be a new law for my people. Jesus also gives them a new way to relate to God. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus is walking through his Sermon on the Mount, and the disciples have asked him in the past about praying and prayer, and what does it mean to pray? And so he says to them, pray like this. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy, is what it says here in the New Living Translation. But uh, Jesus uses the Aramaic word Abba for father, which could actually be translated as daddy, not necessarily as that proper name father, but it, the concept of, of daddy. It's the concept of this beautiful relationship between a dad and his sons and daughters and his children. So Jesus, in his, he's seen in Matthew as a, as a new kind of Moses. Jesus is on the mountain, just like Moses is on the mountain. Jesus is giving his people a new covenant identity. He's giving a new calling for his people. They're going to be salt and light. He's giving a new law for his people. It's an internalized version of the law, a law written on their hearts. And he's given his people a new way to relate to God, rather than relating to God uh, as a distant figure or as a judge who's waiting to uh, cast judgment on them, or as a police officer who's waiting just to catch them committing a crime. Now he's saying, relate to God as Abba, as Daddy, as Father, as one who loves and cares about you. So. Matthew sees Jesus as a new Moses, and he gives us that picture here in, in this Sermon on the Mount. Matthew also sees Jesus as changing Judaism, as changing Judaism. The Old Testament quotes that Matthew uses from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, 
to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, all of these quotations that that uh, Matthew uses, and he gets them directly, many of them directly from Jesus, of course, but they're all ethical commands from the Torah. And what Matthew shows us is that Jesus reinterprets each and every command. And I'll show you one example. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus saying, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. What Matthew is pointing out here, and and obviously Jesus preached this sermon, but it's stuck in Matthew's mind because Matthew as a tax collector, as somebody who was an educated Jew, but also was the subject of ridicule from the Pharisees and from the the ruling Jews and the religious Jews. He has seen kind of what's behind the uh, the current state of Judaism in his world and how it has become a harsh, judgmental type of system. And he's seeing Jesus reinterpret these commands and taking them back to what was originally intended in the Torah, that they would be commands that would be written on our heart, that we would have a relationship with God, where God would continue to put his spirit into us and would be showing us how to live the way that he wanted us to live, that it wasn't just about the command, it was about the heart of it all and and having a heart that loves God and desires to follow God. So this attracts uh, Levi to Jesus, and as, as Levi, or Matthew, as he's later called, is writing his gospel, he is clear to point out to us that Jesus changed the Judaism of his day, that Jesus took a look at it and said, this is not what God intended. And so Matthew shows us all of these Torah quotations and how Jesus takes these ethical commands and he reinterprets each command. So Matthew has a different perspective on Jesus, a different perspective on on who Jesus is. He sees Jesus through an Old Testament lens. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And Matthew sees Jesus as the new Moses. And Matthew sees Jesus as as changing Judaism. That is a unique perspective that Matthew has that we do not see in Mark or Luke or John. Well, I hope you have a fantastic day. We are going to continue on talking about the Sermon on the Mount for a little bit, and there is some really cool stuff coming up here. So I want to leave it there. I want to leave some time and uh, not jump into some of the other things that we're going to talk about in future weeks in the podcast. Hope you have a fantastic day. Take care and God bless.